Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod which is produced at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and co-hosted by me, Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And beside you, Sharon, Anna Greta Hunter, cardiologist, physician and the Human Futures Fellow with the ANU College of Health and Medicine. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. Today, I'm here on my own as my pod buddy, Anna Greta Hunter, is away doing other things, um, acting as a cardiologist and probably saving lives. And we will miss her very much today. Over the past year or so, we've had several episodes of the pod that have talked about various international fora aiming to bring about action on the climate emergency. And we've had some remarkable conversations in the lead up to and in the wake of the conferences of the parties that were held in 2021 and 2022. Today, we're discussing the deliberations and the outcomes of the Bonn Climate Change Conference, which took place in Germany recently. That conference aimed to lay the groundwork for the political decisions that will be required at the United Nations Conference on Climate Change, or COP28, at the end of this year, to discuss what happened in Bonn, what agreements were reached, what the points of tension were, and what the wider implications are, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Siobhan McDonnell. Siobhan was part of the negotiations in Bonn and she was elected as the main facilitator for the conference change negotiation. Siobhan McDonnell is someone who is well known to our regular listeners. She's a lawyer, an anthropologist, an economist who has spent the past 25 years working with Indigenous people in Australia and across Oceania on land rights, gender and climate change issues including acting as climate change negotiator for various governments across the Pacific. Siobhan is also a wonderful colleague here at the Crawford School. Siobhan, we're delighted to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And just um, a small correction, I was uh, I was briefly the facilitator in the loss and damage uh, negotiations, the informal negotiations uh, that were held in Bonn. So loss and damage is what I've been negotiating uh, for various Pacific governments since 2015, and that was obviously uh, a couple of different areas that were major issues uh, during the Bonn climate negotiations. Siobhan, thank you so much for, for that clarification. And um, we will talk a little bit about some of the loss and damage issues today today. Um, 
but we'd also remind our listeners that you've joined us in the past to talk about some of those those discussions and the negotiations that you facilitated around loss and damage. So um, for listeners who want to learn more, please go back and listen to those earlier podcasts with Siobhan. Um, but Siobhan, perhaps we could start today by um, by talking a little bit about what happened in Bonn. You've only just returned from that climate change conference. Maybe you could just talk us through what the climate change conference is and how it fits into the landscape of international events on climate. Um, and, and as I said, we've talked to you about some of those other events in the past, but how do all of these pieces fit together? Yeah, so we have um, each year we have uh, an interim conference uh, that has a range of specific agenda items attached to it that are used, um, the substa agenda items are used really to progress matters ahead of the formal COP negotiations. So it's really a, mainly a negotiator-only conference, although it has um, representatives from civil society as well in attendance. Uh, this was the largest ever representation from civil society and it's used, uh, always held this time of year and usually used uh, very strategically to progress um, matters that are seen as very substantial issues uh, that need uh, substantial negotiating work undertaken to progress ahead of um, completion uh, at the end of the year. So for, for many of these issues, there are many meetings that happen in the lead-up to the big formal negotiations that happen at the Conference of the Parties. So in the loss and damage space, for example, uh, your listeners who've been listening for a number of years will know um, that uh, we had a very historic breakthrough at COP27. We had agreement to launch the loss and damage finance facility. The issue now is what form the kind of the finance arrangements will take and there are a, a whole series of meetings that are taking place this year around uh, really what is a, a series of working groups and a transitional committee to design some of those arrangements. Um, and some of those meetings also took place at Bonn. So the work happens throughout the year on some of these agenda items, but the very formal and final negotiations happen at the Conference of the Parties where decision text is resolved and the outcomes of the Conference of the Parties sign off the mandate <laughs> for all parties under the UN, the United Nations Framework Convention of Climate Change each year. So that's essentially how these different mechanisms work. It's a rolling set of work that happens uh, sometimes less or sometimes more depending on on how big the item is. Uh, and the bond meeting is always held traditionally in the middle of the year uh, to progress that work. Siobhan, I wanted to come back later in the pod to talk in more detail about the loss and damage conversations. But I wonder if we could just kind of map some of the broader issues first. And what were some of the major decisions or the major issues that came out of the Bonn conference? What, what were some of those kind of headline issues that were discussed? 
I mean, let's talk about the issues because it's easier to <laughs> outcomes is a different story um, and we can come back to that later. Uh, so there are a number of really key decision-making points. Um, there is an ongoing debate around this area of mitigation of how we keep global warming below 1.5 degrees, of what activities can be uh, signed off on under the mitigation work plan globally, of what commitments countries are prepared to make in terms of mitigation. So these are aside from countries' nationally determined contributions. And this is increasingly a very concerning space for the Pacific, for example, because mitigation commitments and targets are being increasingly watered down. And that is an outcome that has happened partly because of the kind of power discussions that are now happening as a result of the Ukraine war. Um, we are in a new kind of power era. There's a lot of countries who have lost access to their historic sources of power and electricity and are now looking to open, for example, coal mines again. One of the big debates that was very concerning is whether for the first time in the history of the COP there would be the inclusion of a reference to the IPCC climate science report, the latest climate science report, in the agenda or not. So this is where we're at. Can we even acknowledge the latest IPCC report? Huge matter of negotiation. Siobhan, I wonder if we can tease that out a little bit, like in terms of even referencing the IPCC report. Where did debates around that sit? Is there a willingness to put the science at the centre of, of considerations around mitigation and to recognise the extent of the seriousness of the situation or do we still see a reticence on the part of governments to to even put the science at the centre for the reasons that you talked about, the, the crisis we see around energy, cost of living challenges, you know, are, are those issues taking precedence over the urgency around the need to act on mitigation? So... It has been established practice that the climate, the IPCC report is a standing agenda item in the COP, uh, that it gets acknowledged. And uh, that is no longer understood as agreed. So I feel like that's a significantly backward step. This is a particularly important uh, IPCC report for the Pacific because there's a specific set of acknowledgements of the loss and damage that is currently occurring globally based on the climate science and is currently occurring in the Pacific. Um, I, you know, I read the climate science constantly and I read the IPCC reports, I, you know, I'm sure lots of your listeners don't read IPCC reports and they are, you know, terribly depressing to read, honestly, but they're also incredibly conservative documents. 
So they're written in climate science paradigms where everything is written uh, within an interval of confidence attached to it. While we were at Bonn, um, the Alliance of Small Island States and a whole range of other countries were actually presented with breaking climate science that had just been uh, developed in conjunction with the recent climate science report, the IPCC report, which shows that all of the projections that were currently understood as projections for small island states into the future were uh, twice as bad than what had been estimated approximately. So the projections for Port Vila, for example, were uh, 1.5 metre sea level rise at 2,100. They now look like they've been recalibrated to three metres. A whole range of delegates in that room watched their islands underwater. I mean, there was real and palpable grief in that room. And I think the climate scientists were shocked (laughs) at the response that they observed in the room. But up until that point in time, we had not seen that science. That's new emerging science based on glacial melt and what is happening in the Arctic at the moment. The climate science is horrific. It's apocalyptic. And to not even begin from that established understanding is very hard. So this is where we're at. Um, The negotiations are difficult right now. I mean, things will hopefully shift between now and the end of the year. There are lots of concerns that have been raised about the UAE presidency. The UAE presidency has asked in response that delegates retain an open mind and don't believe what they hear in the newspaper or what is being spoken about by civil society. But the negotiations are hard right now. Siobhan, thank you so much for sharing that. I think when we hear about that step back from the science, but also the way you describe the grief that is felt amongst people who will lose their homes, who will lose their culture, who will lose their history if we don't act, gives us a focus that we don't always feel when these conversations are are being described in the abstract. And these timeframes are like the timeframes for these are 2030, 2050. I mean, You watch a room go silent. You're sitting in a room of people from the Pacific and from the Caribbean who are looking at their island homes being mapped as red and underwater. And there is grief in that room. This is not arbitrary lines on a map. Um... These are people who are fighting every day 
in these negotiating spaces for change and for a better alternative and for hope. Um, And like other people, you know, from the places that they represent are coming in with the hope of making a difference and for creating an alternative future. Siobhan, I was in Norway during the Bonn conference and Gunbrit Retta received quite a bit of coverage and she brought a perspective that isn't always at the forefront of the mainstream coverage of international climate negotiations. Um, Gunbrit Retta is the head of the Arctic and Environmental Unit of the Sami Council um, and was a member of the Sami Parliament in Norway. She spoke very powerfully of the need for Indigenous peoples to be actively involved in climate policy negotiations. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Siobhan, on how those global negotiations might begin to look different if Indigenous peoples had genuine representation and greater power to influence and to lead some of those discussions. Thank you so much for that question. I think it's um I think it's so important. Uh I one of the things uh I think you know Sharon is that last year um I set up and led uh alongside George Carter and Virginia Marshall uh so Pacific Islander and First Nation scholars a program out of the ANU to take five First Nations and uh Pacific Islander PhD students from the ANU to COP uh, in an ANU climate alumni program, which we hope to repeat this year. Uh, And we took them to the ELSIP platform, the local communities and Indigenous peoples platform, where they sat and worked alongside other Indigenous leadership. And uh, there are many limitations to that platform, which I don't want to go into here but it's an incredible platform for for sharing Indigenous knowledge. Uh, And Indigenous knowledge, not only are Indigenous people the most impacted by climate change, uh, they also have so many of the solutions. So we know that Indigenous areas, uh, areas that are under Indigenous control, have the highest biodiversity values of anywhere in the world. We know that Indigenous knowledge systems are so instrumentally important for adaptation solutions. We know that Indigenous knowledge has essential pathways for understanding these issues of relocation, for example, of creating um, kinship-based relocation solutions in the face of all of these instrumental challenges across the Pacific. And uh, part of what I'm really proud of is that when we set up the Santiago network arrangements and the governance structure of the advisory body, the Pacific pushed for an Indigenous representative on the advisory board. So the advisory board of the Santiago network that will deliver technical assistance across the globe has Indigenous representation on it because in part of a large, large push from the Pacific. And I think there's a real and increasing 
recognition of the importance of including Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous peoples at the forefront of these solutions. It's coming much too late, much too late. And I think there's an incapacity so often at the interface of Western science to incorporate Indigenous knowledge systems. And that is the fault of Western science. But we have got to get our heads around it before it's too late. And that's not a question for these glo- this global policymaking. This is a question for Australia. You know that I work, I've had a history of working with you and down, down the coast, for example. Um, and one of the things that you and fire practitioners will tell you is they would much prefer to burn on private land than to try and work with New South Wales parks because it's impossible to work with New South Wales parks and do cultural burning. So here we go. We establish all of these regulatory institutional frameworks that prevent Indigenous cultural burning and Indigenous knowledge systems from providing answers in this way. Welcome to Australia, right? So this is not just about practicing this globally it's about practicing this internal to Australia as well we need to learn from this the most successful biodiversity outcomes we have in Australia are in Aboriginal ranger programs right but let's start paying people a fair wage let's not start let's not continue paying them work for the dole wages right let's pay them properly for the professional services that they provide Like, let's get real about what it is that people bring in terms of the space of expertise. Siobhan, as I'm listening to what you're saying, you know, I I see that link between what happens locally, what happens within Australia and what can happen globally. The opportunities that we have locally to do things very differently, to think yes, about yes. our landscape, to think about the ecology and, and to take a, a world-leading position on some of these issues yep. if only we are prepared to stop and listen. Let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all there, isn't it? It's all there for us to do it. And, Javon, I'm thinking about um, – the way in which the Australian government has recently talked about First Nations diplomacy. Um, The Foreign Minister, Senator Penny Wong, spoke of that at the Australian National University a couple of months ago. Last year, the government appointed the first ambassador for First Nations peoples. Are we seeing a genuine shift from the government in terms of how we engage in international fora like those around climate change And do you think this signals an intent to do things different locally? Or are we just seeing the signalling without the action so far? I think it's a little bit too early to tell, to be honest. Uh, So let me begin at the beginning. Uh, I've spent years talking internally to DFAT, like literally years and years, about why I think an Indigenous diplomacy strategy is an important strategy for DFAT to pursue. And that's partly because, um, as, again, your listeners might remember, um, 
I have had the honour of representing Pacific governments at the Pacific Island Forum, for example, and seeing the contrast between New Zealand being represented by all Pacific ministers and Australia being represented by Maurice Payne, for example. And so the New Zealand optic is the Pacific talking to the Pacific versus the Australian optic. And when Australia uses the language of Pacific family, it could be using that language and speaking to this deep set of relationships that have existed between Aboriginal Australia, right, in the north, through the Torres Strait to PNG, across or the history from Vanuatu of blackbirding into Australia and back again, in Aboriginal Australia and back again. You know, there are these deep familial relationships that stretch in all of these ways. There's a fabric already of Indigenous diplomacy that exists. People sing and dance both ways, right? There is language, there is a way of relating that is so, (laughs) so um, easy and accommodating and respectful. And there are these deep pre-existing cultural ties. Why would you not (laughs) build a strategy based on those, right? There are long trade networks. There are long historical trade networks. Um, There's bechamel trade networks that have existed across time. So there are ways in which Australia needs to be better at using that language of Pacific family and rather than just using it as at a rhetorical level of actually thinking about what it could mean. And I really hope that this idea of Indigenous diplomacy starts to embody that because the the honour of my work is that so many of the spaces I operate in are in these spaces of Indigenous diplomacy. And I'm constantly moving between Aboriginal Australia and the Pacific. So, for example, one of the things I did last year was accompany uh, the Indigenous parliamentarians for West Papua, uh, so led by Alex Sobel, so the Shadow Minister for the UK for UK Environment, uh, Ralph Regan Vanu, current Climate Change Minister for Vanuatu, and Benny Wender, the uh, acting interim president for uh, West Papua, to Parliament House, where they met, amongst other people, Pat Dodson. That's Indigenous diplomacy, right? That's a meeting across Aboriginal Australia, West Papua, Vanuatu. There's a whole range of Indigenous leaders coming together and it was, it was beautiful. It was a really beautiful meeting. Those acts happen all the time. Um, but how do we start to actually move forward into, a, into creating those spaces And how do we then start creating those spaces, for example, in a way that's meaningful across 
Indigenous knowledge systems and climate change, for example? Could we start thinking about Indigenous ranger programs across the Pacific? Why is Australia not funding those? Why can't we have an Indigenous knowledge sharing program that operates through Aboriginal Australia into the Pacific and back again? Thinking about modes of climate change resilience across Aboriginal Australia and the Pacific. When, are we start, when do we start getting more sophisticated in this space? Siobhan, when we have these conversations, so much of the discussion is deeply depressing um, and the ways in which we can move forward seem to be littered with barriers. And yet when I hear you talking about these opportunities of thinking and doing differently, there's a sense of optimism and a sense of hope and a sense of positive change um, that 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 really moves us away from that sense of not being able to act and and having no pathways forward. And again, it comes back to the importance of simply listening and listening respectfully and then having the will to act differently. We're going to take a very short break now and we're going to come back to talk more about, about some of these conversations, about the challenges, but also about the hope. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Siobhan McDonnell. We're talking about the recent Bond Climate Change Conference, but also talking much more broadly about both the opportunities and the challenges we have to act around climate emergency. Siobhan, we began this conversation by by mentioning very briefly issues around loss and damage, and I wonder if we could turn to those issues of loss and damage now. You've talked about them before on the pod, but could you share with us how some of those discussions played out in Bonn? You mentioned at the beginning that there was a, a remarkable decision taken last year to put these issues on the agenda. How are we seeing those conversations progress? Yeah, I mean, there there was a very important and historic decision uh, that was taken at COP27 to establish a loss and damage fund and uh, this was a decision that that the Pacific but globally the global south had been calling for for 31 years uh, 
So it was really a historic decision. And this uh, decision came with the understanding that this would be uh, new and additional finance. So in addition to adaptation financing that is already provided, although not to the scale that's been promised. And the conversation now is about what the, like what those arrangements that make up the fund should look like. And it's fair to say at the moment there is not agreement around around what those arrangements should look like and there are a number of countries from uh, from the global north who want to ensure that contributions don't just come uh, from parties internal to the UNFCCC process, that they also come from large-scale finance corporations, from philanthropists, from other, you know, other bodies that might be outside the UNFCCC process. But it's a very core uh, and important element to the decision text for the G77 and China countries that it must, the decision must see the establishment of a new fund under under the UNFCCC arrangements. So there must, the idea around what that looks like looks different depending on which kind of negotiating block you talk to. From a Pacific perspective, uh, there's a very clear position that there needs to be the capacity to finance to have finance go to national governments, that the Pacific is very diverse and that there's an understanding of local and cultural needs at a local national government level, that loss and damage is complex, that loss and damage assessments are best made by national governments. And the reason that this is being put forward so strongly is because current climate finance arrangements often bypass national governments in the Pacific. And this is a key issue of concern. So the Pacific doesn't want to replicate that story again. It's about national programming. It's about thinking through nationally-led solutions and it's about looking at flexible arrangements with long-term kind of programmatic and flexible funding attached to loss and damage finance. Now, if I just give you some really practical examples, because I know this can sound a bit technical, there's currently, for example, so I'm just going to drill down to some really practical issues. So after the cyclones hit Vanuatu, uh, since 2019, I have been working in Vanuatu on relocation and resettlement issues. So after the cyclones 
happened earlier this year, two cyclones within a 72-hour period. The Vanuatu government asked me to go in and design a national relocation plan for Vanuatu. So as part of pulling together that plan, I collected some IDMC data, so that's the International Displacement Monitoring Centre data, which shows that over the last 10 years, over half of the population of Vanuatu has been displaced at one time or another due to disasters. That's the scale of displacement. There is currently absolutely no finance products that can be accessed for relocation. Critical gap. There are no finance products that can be accessed for slow onset issues like sea level rise. You want to do any work to relocate and resettle people for sea level rise, relocate infrastructure because of sea level rise. There is no finance product. There is no insurance products for sea level rise. There's no insurance products for slow onset issues at all. So there are a whole range of products that are needed, finance products that are needed to address loss and damage. Okay, here is probably the most critical issue for the Pacific. The Pacific constantly says that in terms of loss and damage, the most significant issues to the Pacific are the issues not of material loss and damage, not of the loss of buildings, not of the loss of infrastructure, but of non-economic loss and damage, the loss of place, the loss of ancestral burial grounds, the health impacts of loss and damage, the mental health impacts of loss and damage, the loss of life attached to disasters. These are all the the areas that are considered non-economic loss and damage. There is no finance for non-economic loss and damage. None. So when we talk about this finance facility, all of these aspects of these issues that are of the utmost important importance to the Pacific, they currently don't have any finance products to address any of these pivotal concerns that are making a huge difference in terms of people securing their futures as a result of the climate impacts that they are experiencing now right now, not just into the future, but right now. So this is literally where the rubber hits the road, okay? So in terms of non-economic loss and damage, we don't even have an agreed methodology for how to cost these things at the moment. They are such incredibly powerful examples, the ground discussions that often, as you pointed out, feel both very technical and very abstract. I'm really curious to hear how much those practical examples that shape people's lives, that shape 
the nature of nations in the Pacific particularly, and those examples where we see the realities of culture and connection being challenged, how much do those practical examples, those practical experiences feed back into international negotiations? In fora like Bonn, are people listening to the reality faced by Pacific Island nations? I think the answer is yes. I think at a very human level, at a human-to-human, negotiator-to-negotiator level, people are listening. And I just think that it's hard to explain the complexity and uh, the importance, for example, of attachment to place for Pacific people. Um, You know, every now and again I'll be talking uh, to someone from Europe or America and they'll say to me, don't these people from this atoll island just, why don't they just understand that they're going to need to move? (laughs) And I just want to say to them, these are thousands of years of genealogy. This is place and belonging and identity. This is every family story you've ever known across generations. This is place and belonging and meaning saturated into the core of your being. You don't just move. It's not moving from Bonn to Copenhagen. And I think that is hard conceptually to understand it's hard to understand that connection to place and without it the scale of loss is not felt or understood in the same way so um but I think the other part of it is that there is there's a deep human understanding But there's also a sense of overwhelm, you know. Conversations are safer at the technical level, genuinely. And also at some point a number and a figure has to be placed on these things and we have to find resolution in order to be able to move forward. The real politic of this space is that people need to be able to go back to their governments and explain what it is that those governments will be committing to. And that's the real politic of this space and that's what it takes to get agreement Um, and that is understood. Siobhan, earlier this year and prior to the Bonn Conference, as a result of of very much of Vanuatu's leadership and diplomacy, the UN General Assembly agreed that the International Court of Justice would be asked to rule on the obligations of countries or the obligations that countries have in addressing climate change. How important was that decision and, and does it signal a change in the way climate policy and obligations are being discussed globally? I mean, it was a fabulous decision. Um, 
I have been honoured to be working internal to that task force on the ICJ matter for a number of years. Um, It's being led by a fantastic group of lawyers in Blue Ocean Law. Um, It was a huge win for Vanuatu and I think there's real potential for this case to provide what is much needed in this space of international law, which is for us to really start to settle some of these big questions um, that have been unknowable really in law for a long period of time, which is if a country is causing large-scale global emissions uh, and other countries are bearing climate impacts as a result, are there legal obligations of some kind? And I think that's a very important question for all of us to be able to consider. And it is an advisory opinion, so it has the status only of an advisory opinion. There are submissions going forward between now and October And then it will be a matter of years, really, before we have uh, a judgment that's handed down. But there are now a series of similar pieces of international legal actions that are taking place, Um, and all of them are important and all of them help us to establish what the law is internationally and where the obligations sit. And I think that's that's increasingly important. Uh, and I think um, it shows real leadership from Vanuatu to have taken this action forward. Siobhan, this has been such a remarkable conversation and it's a conversation that I would love to continue for a lot longer, but we're going to have to to draw it to a close for now. Um, And in doing so, we we began with the Bonn Conference. Uh, Let's return to the Bonn Conference as, as we do end this conversation. As we said at the beginning, the Bonn Conference aimed to lay the foundations for COP28 later this year. Coming out of Bonn, how optimistic are you feeling about COP28 and what's likely to be achieved there? Um, I'm not feeling as optimistic as I would like, but I there is time. There is time between now and when we meet in the UAE. I do think there was progress that was made in Bonn in a range of areas. I also have concerns. And I think there is a real need, uh, particularly in the space of mitigation um, and loss and damage for parties to recommit. Siobhan, this has been, as always when we talk with you, an incredible conversation. 
The amount of work that you are doing in this area is incredible and thank you for that work that you're doing. As you said, we have some real challenges ahead, but there is time. There is time between now and COP28 and there are ways forward, ways that you've shared with us today, including respect for for Indigenous knowledge and, and what that brings, opportunities to do things differently, to focus seriously on mitigation, um, but to begin to think and to act in very different ways. Thank you, Siobhan, for sharing with us what happened at Bonn, but also for sharing with us those opportunities for doing things differently, for thinking differently, and for addressing the challenges that we have in front of us, if only we begin to listen differently. Thank you, Siobhan, for joining us today. (laughs) You're very welcome. Thank you. As is often the case when we talk with Siobhan McDonnell, that conversation was a difficult one to listen to and it reveals the deep challenges that we face in trying to address climate emergency both globally but also nationally and internationally. But as always with Siobhan, she mapped out pathways forward and she gave us cause for hope. And that is a remarkable thing to take away from a conversation. This podcast is produced by policyforum.net and we'll leave a link to the publications and the sources that we've discussed in the show notes. And if you haven't listened to our previous Policy Forum pod conversations with Siobhan McDonnell and with her colleague George Carter, please do listen to those, those episodes. They are definitely worth having a listen to. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe so that you can keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. That's the best way to let other people know the kinds of issues we discuss on the pod and to let them know about this podcast. We love hearing from our audience, so please do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, that's at APPS Policy Forum, or you can flick us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. Next week, Anna Greta will be back alongside of me here at the pod, and we look forward to joining you then. But for now, from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.